0: Together verses 9 through 16, John chapter 3. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You now, having sung Your praises and spoken to You those things which are the thoughts and intents and desires of our hearts. We ask now that You would speak to us through Your Word, that you would meet us where we are at and match the needs of our lives with the truth and instruction from your word. Be glorified and pleased and praised and exalted this morning as we look into your word. May your spirit be our teacher and may your glory be our concern. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week I got an email from somebody here in the congregation commenting on last week's sermon. And I always enjoy the feedback. I should say I enjoy most feedback, not all of it. But uh, this one I enjoyed because uh, the person who wrote the email said, in all of my years as being a Christian and reading through John 3, I had never connected the words in verse 15 and what follows with Nicodemus and the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. In my mind, he said, I had always sort of read John 3.16 apart from Nicodemus, just as something that Jesus said and that whole section of stuff in 3.16 and following sort of is separate from Nicodemus. And I started thinking about it, I thought, you know, I have to admit that that's sort of how I had read it as well. I had never really understood John 3.16 in the context of what Jesus has said to Nicodemus. I understood John 3.16, but I never realized that it was that verse occurs in the midst, right in the middle of what is an extended rebuke to a Pharisee for his unbelief at Jesus' statement that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And it's important for us to understand the context, because we're coming up to one of the most memorized, most read, most quoted, most printed, most beloved verses in all of the New Testament, John 3.16. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a little hesitant to even try and preach that, because what do you say about John 3.16? But that's next week, not this week, thankfully. I have a whole week to try and think about and worry and and get ulcers over that. But for today, we're looking up through verse 15, and we need to understand John 3.16 comes in the middle of a rebuke to a man concerning his unbelief. We saw that in verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And he is expressing to Jesus utter disbelief at the thought that he, as a Pharisee, as a law-abiding, self-righteous Jew, had any need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven whatsoever. And so Jesus begins in John 10 with a rebuke to Nicodemus for his unbelief. He says in verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And if I have told you things, earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And the rest of the passage goes on to repeat this theme of belief versus unbelief. And we sort of traced it last week. You can see it in verse 15, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Verse 16 God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so the whole conversation has changed from a discussion of the need and the nature of regeneration, the new birth, now to Jesus putting His finger on the key issue with Nicodemus, which was Nicodemus's rank unbelief in the face of what Jesus had said to him in verse 3 and in verse 5 you must be born again, because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So in verse 12, which we ended with last week, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If I have told you earthly things, how will you believe, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And the sentiment is this. If you are unable to accept the straightforward, fundamental, Old Testament-taught reality that the sinner needs a new heart, if you're not able to accept that, then you are not going to believe if I were to tell you that God loved the whole world so much that He sent His Son into the world so that people might have life through the atoning, sacrificial death of that Son. That just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, the Son of God, be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And friends, that's... That's the truth. If you can't get over the fact that you need to be born again, you will never accept the fact that God gave His Son to be your Savior. If you cannot accept that you are a sinner, you will never get to the next step, which is admitting that God sent His Son to be your Savior for your sin. If you can't accept the statement in verse 3 that you must be born again, you will (coughs) choke over verse 16 that God sent His Son into the world so that the world might be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. And so it's a very simple argument from the lesser, to the greater, and don't miss the fact that this is a very strong rebuke to Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know this? Ouch. Man, that hurts. Here you are in a place of teaching others how to enter the kingdom of heaven, and Nicodemus, you don't even know how to get in yourself. Not only that, but your rank unbelief is keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven, and you're in a position to tell other people how to get into the kingdom of heaven. How can you be the teacher of Israel and not understand this so basic, fundamental thing? That is a blistering rebuke to Nicodemus for his unbelief. Now somebody may at this juncture ask, and maybe Nicodemus was thinking it in his mind, I don't know. They might ask, what qualifies Jesus to rebuke a man like Nicodemus? What qualifies this son of a Galilean carpenter, This man, the son of Joseph, from Galilee, the most despised region of the whole nation, and from Nazareth, one of the most despised cities in the whole region of the most despised region of the country, what qualifies this Galilean poor carpenter to instruct a man like Nicodemus, to rebuke him, to confront him, and to teach him heavenly things? What qualifies Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, to teach heavenly things? Now you and I know the answer to that question. It's because he is. The Son of God, the Son of Man, God in human flesh. That's what qualifies Him. And that is what Jesus addresses next in verse 13. And So that's where we pick it up this morning. Jesus says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven. Now it seems that Jesus has two two things in mind here. And I think primarily He's aiming at one of them. But I think He's suggesting this. First of all, no man has the physical ability to ascend to heaven And then to come back and to teach heavenly things to people on earth. That makes sense. Nobody has the ability to ascend into heaven. Look, if I could go to heaven every once in a while, I think I would be a much better preacher than I am, a much more intelligent teacher than I am, and a lot more able to answer some of the questions that I get fielded on Friday nights when we do Ask the Pastor. Because if you've ever been to an Ask the Pastor on Friday nights, about a third to half of the questions that are asked have to do with the nature of heaven. What is heaven like? What is heaven going to be like? How old will I be when I get to heaven? Will I know people when I get to heaven? Will other people know me when I get to heaven? Will there be buildings and animals and cars and streets and things like that in heaven? Will there be chocolate in heaven? All of these questions that kids sort of throw out, I can answer them the best that I could. But listen, if if I could just go to heaven a couple times a week and then come back here and relate to you heavenly things, I would be much better at answering some of those questions much better at teaching you. But the reality is that no man can ascend to heaven physically because... Well, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So I think Jesus has that in the back of his mind as he's, as he's saying that. That's what he means. No one has ascended. No man can ascend to heaven physically because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But I think he has something else, and this I think is primarily what he has in mind. No man has the ability to attain or to gain or to go to heaven in and of himself. Man lacks the fundamental ability to acquire, to achieve, to enter into heaven. And this is primarily what I think Jesus means, especially in light of verse 3. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, that is, born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And that, I think, is what He's saying in verse 13. No man can ascend to heaven. No man has ascended to heaven. No man has that ability to attain or to gain heaven because it is outside of man's ability to acquire or to achieve. Man cannot in his own righteousness... Man cannot by his own ability. Man cannot by an act of his own will, will himself or get himself into heaven. He lacks the power. He cannot and he has not in and of himself. That is why he must be born again and that is why it is entirely by grace. No man has ascended to heaven and no man can ascend to heaven. It is completely outside of his ability, but there is one man who can and there is one man who has. And that one man who was in heaven has now come down to earth and is qualified to teach us heavenly things. Who is it? It is the Son of Man. Now that title is one of Jesus' favorite titles to use of Himself. He uses it 80 times in the Gospels, 13 times here in the Gospel of John. We saw it back at the end of chapter 1 when He says to Nathaniel, you will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He uses the title there of Himself. He uses it uh, 8 or 9 more times, and I say 13, so 11 more times in the Gospel of John, we're not going to talk about the significance of that title today. We're going to save it for a much more um, significant context later on in the Gospel of John. But here's what I want you to know about the title. It indicates two things. It has basically two meanings or two ideas in mind. First of all, it, it implies or s- strongly hints at the humanity of Jesus, thus the title Son of Man. But it is also in the Old Testament used of deity. And it is in the New Testament also a title that was used of deity. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he has those two things in mind. That the individual being spoken of, that is Jesus himself, was both God and he was man. Now what I want you to see in this context is primarily two things. Notice that Jesus mentions his own pre-existence. The verse 13 speaks of Jesus' pre-existence. We saw this back in chapter 1. I want you to flip back there just to remember. Chapter 1, verse 18. John says, concerning Jesus, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, that is the only or the unique Son of God, the unique God has explained Him, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the unique God, and that's the idea of only begotten, He who is the only begotten or the unique God has revealed the Father because He is in the bosom of the Father. In other words, from John one eighteen, Jesus, as the Son of God, was in a unique relationship with God the Father and so he was uniquely qualified to reveal the nature of the Father here on earth to us and so the only unique God is the one who has revealed all that can be revealed all that needs to be revealed of the Father that's why Jesus said to Philip if you've seen me you've seen the Father there's no more revelation of God that needs to be given so what qualifies him to come onto this earth and to speak to Nicodemus and say I can teach you heavenly things Well, no man has ascended to heaven, so no other man is qualified to speak of heavenly things like Jesus is qualified to speak of heavenly things, except the Son of Man, He who was in heaven, who was with the Father, who eternally existed before all things, before all angels, before all of creation, He is in a unique position to come to earth, and He has to speak of heavenly things. So verse 13 speaks of the pre-existence of Christ, and the second significant thing I want you to notice is how Jesus was aware of His own pre-existence. Do you notice that? Jesus being God and being man, 100% God, 100% man, not half and half, not some strange amalgamation of the two, not God having become only man and not a man who is going to become God, but 100% God, 100% man. He was both omniscient and limited in knowledge at the same time. This is the mystery of godliness and the mystery of the incarnation. There are times when Jesus reveals his omniscience, his ability to know things that only God could know. We've seen that in the Gospel of John chapter 1 even. And then there are other times when Jesus was unaware of certain things. What we see in John chapter 3 verse 13 is that Jesus was aware of his own pre-existence. Now to what degree and what he knew in his humanity of his own pre-existence, I don't know. It's a little bit of a mystery to me. But it's interesting to me that Jesus was aware that he pre-existed. He was aware of his relationship to the Father and his existence with the Father before the world was, and he mentions it here in John chapter 3. In fact, he, he, uses that fact and mentions that fact all the way through John the gospel look at John chapter 6 I want you to I'm going to give you a quick tour of a couple passages that are very significant John chapter 6 Beginning at verse 33 Actually look at verse 32 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you It's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven But it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world Who is the bread of heaven? Jesus is, verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So there Jesus speaks not only of his preexistence, but the fact that he came from heaven to earth. Look at John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see there, I'm the living bread, and I came down out of heaven. Look at verse 46 of the same chapter, a little bit out of order. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And there Jesus is saying that He was the one as the bread of life who had actually seen the Father. He was aware of His own preexistence. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of My own initiative, but He sent Me. He recognized that he came from God and he knew of his own pre-existence with the Father. John 8, 58, this is probably one of my favorite statements in all the Gospel of John. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were questioning him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And here he uses the divine title of himself. And any Jew standing there listening to what Jesus said understood exactly what he meant. He was claiming to exist prior to Abraham and to be the eternally existent one, who was there? Who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is why in verse fifty nine they picked up stones to stone him. They understood what he was saying was blasphemy, unless he was God in human flesh, unless he did pre-exist before he came to earth, unless he existed before the world was then john eight fifty eight is the worst blasphemy you could possibly utter. Look also at John thirteen verse three, just a couple of more. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He had existed with God before he ever came here. John 16, verse 28. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And then John 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. That, my friends, is one of the most blasphemous things you could possibly say if you were not God in human flesh. Glorify Me. When in the Old Testament, God says, I will share My glory with nobody. None of it. And yet Jesus had the audacity to say, Father, glorify Me with the glory that I had with You before the world was. He's either God in human flesh or He is the worst, the worst blasphemer who has ever lived? I believe He's God in human flesh. Now back to John chapter 3. Back to John chapter 3. Jesus says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. A no man can physically go to heaven. No man spiritually has the ability to attain heaven. Only one person, that is the Son of Man, who was in heaven, who has descended from heaven, and can ascend back to heaven. When did He ascend back to heaven? After His death. His burial, and His resurrection. But Jesus was uniquely, as the Son of God, qualified to come from heaven to earth and to ascend at any time He wanted from earth to heaven. Now, contrary to word-faith theology, which teaches that Jesus had to be born again, look what verse 13 says. No man can ascend to heaven except whom? The Son of Man. Does the Son of Man need to be born again? Did Jesus need to be born again? Jesus didn't need to be born again. He could ascend to heaven without being born again. Because he was not a spiritually dead sinner. He didn't need regeneration. He is the one person who has ever lived that did not need to be born again. Because he had life in himself. So when would he ascend to heaven? After his death, which brings us to verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And there Jesus is alluding to his death. When Jesus says "lifted up, he's not referring to uh, exaltation in worship. He's not referring to people lifting him up with praise. He is referring to the manner and the means of his death. There's something in his death or uh, uh, something significant about his death that he is in a very mysterious way alluding to. Verse 16 really is an explanation of verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15 speaks of him being lifted up. Verse 16 explains really a little bit more about how that was going to happen, that God would send a son and give his son into the world, so that those who believe in Him would not perish. So verse 16 is a little bit of an explanation of verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 14 alludes to the passage that we read in our Scripture reading, Numbers chapter 21. And since it's being alluded to there, I want you to turn back. Keep your finger in John 3 because we'll be back here. Turn back to Numbers 21. And I know that we're flipping around a lot more than we normally do here. But some days, some Sundays are just that way. Numbers chapter 21. Now when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atherim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will surely destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and thus the name of the place was called Horma. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. Now I want you to notice something. What the Lord has just done is answered their prayer and blessed them with deliverance, delivered their people, delivered them from the Canaanites. He has blessed the people and answered their prayer for something specific. They have just seen God do a mighty thing. And they have just seen God do a mighty thing in response to their prayer. Now verse 4. And the people became impatient because of the journey the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, all of their mumbling and their complaining in Numbers chapter 20 to 21 comes hot on the heels of God's deliverance and God's blessing. Now, you and I never do this, I understand. It's very difficult for you to relate to complaining right after God has blessed you incredibly with something. But that's what the Israelites had done. Oftentimes, God's blessings lead to bickerings. And we bicker right after we have been incredibly blessed by something. And notice not only that they are bickering and complaining and murmuring right on the heels of incredible blessing, but notice what they are murmuring about. We loathe this miserable food. Here the Lord had sustained them in the wilderness, miraculously, providentially, an entire nation, and fed them every day faithfully met all of their needs. And they are not only complaining after God had blessed them tremendously, but what are they complaining about? We loathe this food. Now you never do that either, I understand. You never complain about your blessings. You never complain about your wife or your kids or your grandkids or your job or your house or your car or any of God's provision. So it's very difficult for you to relate to that, just as very difficult for me to relate to that. But bear with me if you will. So they have complained and they have murmured not only right after God's blessing, but they have complained and murmured about God's blessing. And anybody who understands God's nature and His character and His grace would say to themselves right now, the one thing that God should do is destroy the entire nation, wipe them all out. No grace, no mercy, anything. Instead, verse 5, or verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people, many of the people of Israel died. Now, God should have wiped out the whole nation. Why? Because every single complaint or murmuring or bickering by us about anything we are given is nothing less than an assault upon the nature, the character, the forbearance, the goodness, the kindness, the providence, and the wisdom of Almighty God. And God should have wiped them all out. But He sent fiery serpents amongst the people that bit the people, and the people began to die. And so they cried out to Moses in verse 7. They said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and against you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. So they asked for deliverance. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So the Lord sent a deliverance, a means of deliverance, and it was this. Create the image of the serpent that is the curse of God upon the people for their sin. Put it up on a pole in the sight of all of Israel so that of all the people who are bitten by the serpent, if they will look at that serpent, they will live and they will not die. And so Moses did that. Verse 9, he made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, that is on the pole, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, that when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So how would a Jew, I should say this, all of the Jews who read Numbers 21 understood that in Numbers 21, it was not the serpent itself that brought the deliverance. There was no power in the pole. There was no power in the bronze serpent. The power was in God to deliver them, and they were asking for deliverance, and God was stepping in and provided a means by which they could escape the judgment upon them for their sin. So the fiery serpent was the judgment of God upon the nation for their complaining, their sin of speaking against the Lord and against Moses about their blessings right after an incredible blessing. Now back to John chapter 3. Jesus, in verse 14, alludes to this passage in Numbers 21, when He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Now the question is this, in what way does the does the passage in Numbers 21 foreshadow or picture the reality of the death of Christ? And our job as Bible readers and Bible interpreters is to be very careful that whenever we catch an analogy in Scripture, a writer or a speaker saying this is like that, that we don't push the analogy beyond what the author intended. And it's easy to do that when in your creative mind you try and come up with a whole big list and show people how spiritual you are by making all of these various parallels from one to the other. We don't want to do that. We want to be careful that we do not push the analogy beyond what the author or the speaker intended. Let me give you an example, a blasphemous example, of somebody going too far with this very analogy. Kenneth Copeland, who is a word-faith teacher and a heretic, just so we're clear. we got that on the record. Kenneth Copeland, in speaking about the righteousness of Christ and alluding to this passage, said this. "The Quote, The righteousness of God was made to be sinned. He accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. He's speaking of Christ there. And at the moment that he did so, he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You don't know what happened at the cross. Why do you think Moses, upon the instruction of God, raised a serpent up on that pole instead of a lamb? That used to bug me. I said, why in the world would you want to put a snake up there? The sign of Satan. Why didn't you put a lamb up on that pole? And the Lord said... Because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross. He said, I accepted in my own spirit spiritual death, and the light was turned off, End quote. That is blasphemy. That is heresy of the worst sort. To suggest that the eternal, holy Son of God accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit on the cross, and that the spiritual life in him was turned off, is heresy. And Kenneth Copeland errs on two accounts. First of all, he sees the, pole, the serpent that was on the pole in the wilderness in Numbers 21 as a symbol of the devil, of Satan. But did we read that in Numbers 21? No, that's an idea you have to import into the text with a fanciful imagination in order to ever get it out of the text. What was on the cross was not a symbol of the devil. What was on the cross was the symbol of God's judgment upon the people for their sin. We'll get to that in just a second. The second heretical thing that he does is to equate the serpent, that is the devil, with Jesus Christ himself and to make Jesus out to have and bear the sin nature of Satan himself. And he goes right off the rails with that. See, friends, that's an example of going too far with the analogy. And we have to come back and ask ourselves what was intended by Jesus and what was intended by John in the analogy. When Jesus said, just as this, so is that. What are the parallels that he intended? And I would suggest to you five of them. First, in both cases, that is in Numbers 21 and in John chapter 3, it was death that threatened as the just punishment for sin. In both cases, it is death that threatens the people as a just punishment for sin. In Numbers 21, what threatened them was death through the fiery serpents biting the people that was the just punishment upon them for their sin of grumbling and complaining. In our case, what threatens us justly is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. For the soul that sins it shall die, and the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so all have died, and death is the lot for all of us. Not only physical death, but we all deserve spiritual death. We all deserve eternal hell. It threatens us because of our sin, death does, as the just punishment for our sin. So that's a similarity. In both cases, death threatened as the just punishment for sin, for the sin of the people. A second similarity in the analogy is that in both cases it was God who provided the remedy. In Numbers 21, it was God, not Moses, who gave the instruction and provided the remedy for the people. In the case of Christ being lifted up on the cross, that was the predetermined elect purpose of God, the foreordained method and manner of God by which he would atone for the sins of all who will believe in him. And it was God who provided the remedy of Christ on the cross. It wasn't an accident. He didn't die a martyr's death. It wasn't something that took God by surprise. God provided the remedy in Numbers 21, and he provided the remedy in John 3.16 of sending his own son into the world. So in both cases, it was God who provided the remedy. The third similarity in the analogy is that in both cases, the remedy consisted of something that was lifted up in public view. In Numbers 21, it was the serpent that was put on the pole. It was lifted up in the midst of the whole nation where everybody could see it. So that anybody who had been bitten, anybody who had been bitten and was cursed and was under the judgment of God could look to the pole and see it, see the serpent on the pole, and in that believing look of faith, believing that God would heal them if they looked to the serpent, they would be healed. It was lifted up in public view. The same with the cross of Christ. The crucifixion didn't take place in some ignominious jungle corner of the world. The crucifixion took place in the middle of the largest empire in the world, in the middle of one of the most significant people groups in the entire world, out on a hillside, right by a road where every pilgrim coming into Jerusalem would walk by on their way in to celebrate the Passover during one of the greatest feasts of the year when the most people possible would be in the city of Jerusalem. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, it says that you and I were justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for sin. God in the cross of Christ put His Son up on a cross in plain view so everybody could see it, so that everyone who would look to Him would be healed and have eternal life. So in both instances, what was given as the remedy was put up in public view, lifted high in public view. The fourth similarity... In both cases, that which was lifted up was the judgment of God upon sin. Now, here's where you have to think carefully, lest you jump off the rails like Kenneth Copeland and come up with a total dog's breakfast for your theology. So listen carefully. What was In both cases, what was lifted up was the judgment of God upon sin. It was not a symbol of Satan that was put on the pole in Numbers 21. It was the very thing which was the judgment of God upon the people for their sin. It wasn't a symbol of Satan. It was a symbol of God's judgment that was lifted high. The serpent was the judgment of God upon the sin of the people. And that is what was put up on the pole in public view. So that if people would look to the judgment, their judgment, the judgment they deserve, if they would look at that judgment, then they would be saved. And in the cross of Christ, it is the same thing. Publicly displayed on a cross was my judgment. He bore my sins in his own body on the tree. He became my sin, my substitute, my lamb. That was God's judgment upon me for my sin. By virtue of faith in him, his punishment becomes, or my punishment becomes his punishment. By virtue of faith in him, I participate in that so that on the cross was the judgment of God upon my sin. So that when I look to that, I am healed. Why? Because my judgment was lifted up in front of everybody. Now see, if Kenneth Copeland had just studied his Bible instead of thinking that God was going to give him special revelation about the meaning of the passage, he wouldn't have gone so far afield. What was put up on top of the pole? The judgment of God on sin. Their sin. Who benefited by looking to it? All who looked to it, that cure was made for them. If you didn't look to it, that cure was not effective for you. It's the same with Christ. All who look to Him and acknowledge That on the cross was my judgment. They get eternal life. That is the great exchange over which all of the Scripture is written, that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I trade my sin for His righteousness. There is no better trade in all of the world, in all of human history, that has ever been offered to us. So in both cases, it was the symbol or the sign of God's judgment that was lifted judgment upon sin that was lifted up in public view. And the fifth similarity and the last one is that the only way for salvation was to look to the cure that was provided. In both cases, the only means of salvation was to look to the cure that was provided. Numbers 21, you had to look at the serpent. In the case of the cross, you have to look to Christ to be saved. He is the only cure. There is no other atonement. There is no other Savior. There is no other road to God. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You must look to Christ. In Numbers 21, it was not in any way sufficient to just look to the pole or to look to the tabernacle or to look at Moses or Aaron or the Ark or the Holy of Holies or any other thing in the nation or in the wilderness. You had to look at one thing and one thing only and that was the serpent on the pole. In the instance of the cross in the New Testament, today it is the same. If you look at Your own righteousness, your baptism, your Christian or believing parents, your participation in communion, what you think that you do to earn or to gain salvation. If you look to any of those things, you will be lost. There is only one means of salvation. And it is to look not only just to the wooden cross, but to the Christ who hung upon the cross. Because it is Him, it is He who bore our sin in His own body on the tree. And friends, that's why we celebrate communion today. That's why we embrace Him. That's why we trust Him. That's why we worship Him. Because He has provided for us an atonement, a sacrifice, a payment for sin. And that payment was not just a payment that was made potentially. It was a payment that was made actually. It was an actual atonement, an actual payment for the sins of all who will look to Him. All who will look to Him can have forgiveness. And as we celebrate communion, friends, we do two things. We examine our own hearts before the Lord. And we ought to examine ourselves to make sure, number one, that we are born again and that we have looked to that Christ upon the cross for salvation. And second, we ought to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not living in a way, in a sin, unconfessed sin, before the Lord. So we're going to bow our heads now. We're going to take a few moments to examine ourselves and we'll partake of communion together as we celebrate the fact that our Lord, our Christ, was hung on a cross in public view, the very judgment of sin upon uh, uh, the very judgment of God upon our sin for our righteousness. So let's bow our heads together. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kutni Church.